Our scripture passage for today comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, one more time, would you bow your heads and ask for the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we ask that you would help us now to come before you with a teachable and submissive heart. Lord, we cannot do it on our own for apart from your Holy Spirit governing our minds and our affection. We are so unteachable. We are so stubborn in our own ways. We are self-righteous and we are know-it-alls. Father, it is only through the conviction of your holy love for us and the grandeur of your sovereignty that we are put in our place. And Lord, we lovingly and affectionately desire to be placed in that moment so that we can be in perfect position to hear all that we must, so that we can be refreshed, we can be renewed of the life that comes only in your word to us through the power of your spirit working in it. And so, God, would you move in us and be with us, and that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So apparently, we Christians have a certain language that only we are known to speak. Have you guys heard of this? Have you guys heard of this assumed language that we Christians are known to speak? It's called Christianese. Have you heard of this? Christianese? You know, a set of words and phrases that are only heard within the buildings of the church, only amongst Christians who gather in their various gatherings. Let me give you a couple of examples to see if maybe you speak Christianese. The first is, what's the first one? Oh, guard your heart. Hey, man, I heard you have feelings for this uh, girl over there in our fellowship, and then you're going to take her out for coffee. Make sure, guard your heart, all right? Guard your heart whenever you're around this person, okay? Or how about this one? Traveling mercies. Yeah, me and Marge are uh, visiting the in-laws next week, and we're bringing the kids along, so can you just pray for traveling mercies? Huh? Traveling mercies, please pray for us. And then my personal favorite God thing. Oh my goodness, I totally got this job I'm not qualified for. Total God thing. You guys know God thing? Christianese. Well, at the risk of furthering this prejudice and stereotype, I want to introduce to you a word that could easily pass off as a Christianese word, and that's the word admonish. I'm sorry, something Amish? No, admonish. A word that literally means to confront. To confront. So when we read in our passage in verse 16 where the Apostle Paul commands God's people to admonish one another, what he's literally saying is, Christians, God calls you to confront one another in the church. Now, some of you might hear that and you might be utterly confused because such behavior may seem inconsistent to what you imagine Christians should behave in the church. Because after all, in our culture, to confront someone is always perceived to be a hostile, maybe sometimes even violent thing, right? Soldiers confront their enemies on the battlefield. Rival gangs confront one another on the city streets. But for Christians to confront other Christians in the church, 
that just seems highly, highly inappropriate. What, is Christianity some glorified fight club that gets its jollies out of beating each other up, tearing each other down? No, not at all. Just the opposite. You see, when the New Testament teaches God's people that they are to admonish or confront one another, it does so with the understanding that the goal of this kind of confrontation builds people up in terms of their character. And when you understand that, then you understand why I included this topic in the current sermon series that we're in, the in-person church. Because when you come to understand what's all entailed in admonishing a fellow brother or sister in Christ, you will conclude that there is no way you could possibly do this outside of an in-person, face-to-face encounter and it is my hope and prayer that as you become convinced and persuaded about the necessity of admonishing each other that will trickle down to also being convinced of the importance and necessity of gathering together in an in-person face-to-face setting so with that in mind a few things i'd like to share with you with regard to this idea of admonishing or confronting one another first let's talk about the motivation you should have when you admonish someone then let's talk about the goal you need to remember when you admonish someone and then finally we're going to end with questions you should ask yourself before you admonish somebody the motivation you should have, the goal you need to remember, and the question you should be asking yourself before you confront anyone in the church. Let's begin with the first point, the motivation you should have when you admonish someone. Read again with me verse 14 of our passage where Paul writes the following, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Okay, so just a little context to this verse. In the verses preceding this one, the Apostle Paul talks about the various characteristics or attributes that a genuine follower of Jesus should have. So he talks about attributes like patience, kindness, and gentleness. In other words, the Apostle Paul says that if you are a genuine Christian, you should be a kind person. You should be a gentle person, right? You should be a person who is, who is understanding and patient with others. And then he comes to our verse where he highlights in the minds of many the most important characteristic of all, and that is the characteristic of love. A true follower of Jesus will be a person who truly loves, especially other Christians. Now, if there is anything in our culture today that is most misunderstood, it's love, right? So many people in our society, so many people in the church think they know what true love is when in reality, we're all clueless. We are. And yet, thankfully, the Apostle Paul doesn't leave us in this clueless state of mind because he gives us a very clear description of what true love looks like. And what is it? Verse 16, admonish one another. That's right. According to the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, true love is an admonishing love. True love, i.e. Christian love, is a love that is willing to confront, okay? And what that tells us is, Christian, is that when you ever feel this pull to confront, when you feel this instinct to admonish, you must make sure that the motivation that's inspiring you to do that is out of a love for that person. Now I know some of you guys hearing this, maybe those of you investigating Christianity, welcome by the way, you might not agree with that. 
Because in your mind, you were taught to believe in your culture that true love would never do such a thing. That true love should all be about making the person feel good about themselves. Because true love, they say, would never make the other person that you're loving feel uncomfortable, which is what would result if you ever confronted, if you ever challenged, if you ever constructively criticized them for their good. And so we say, no, 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 no. In our society, real love would never have that kind of impact on others. But is that actually true? Many, many years ago, the great English playwright William Shakespeare once defined love this way in one of his plays. He said, quote, love is a smoke made with the fume of sighs. And you're like, what? (laughs) Well, and essentially what he's saying there is that love hurts. Love in many instances, in many ways, hurts, okay? And for those of you who've been married for a while and those of you who have kids, you know what I'm saying is true. Because who of us in here cannot testify that some of the most deepest wounds that we carry, some of the deepest scars that we still have, came not from random strangers that we've long forgotten. No, they came from people who we deeply love and cherish as well as they deeply love and cherish us, right? Love can and most often does hurt, which means love, true love, can be in many ways uncomfortable. Now, some of you, even though you agree with that, will still push back. You say, well, pastor, come on. We're Christians. We're not Shakespeareans. We don't follow the the lessons and teachings of an English pagan playwright. We follow the teachings of Jesus, and we follow his example of love right? And we are to follow his higher form of love, where he would never do such things, where he would never make anyone uncomfortable if he really loved them, to which I would respond, are you kidding me? Have you not read the Gospels? Because if you have, you would see many instances where Jesus, out of love for someone, will totally confront them, will totally admonish them. Case in point, Matthew, the 16th chapter, here's the situation. Jesus is with his disciples, and then he gives this very ominous foreshadowing saying hey guys in the very near future i'm going to be falsely accused falsely arrested brutally beaten and killed on a cross and one of his most beloved followers a man by the name of peter responds with a sharp rebuke essentially saying jesus how dare you say such a thing to us don't you know how much we love you and therefore don't you know that we would make sure that none of thing none of the things that you just stated would happen now On the surface, aside from the poor bedside manner, we would probably interpret Peter's words as words of love, right? Because he's trying to express, hey, I'm going to make sure nothing happens to you. But unfortunately, Jesus didn't interpret Peter's words that way, evidenced by his response to Peter's rebuke. Because do you know what he says in verse 23 of that same chapter in response to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Jesus just called someone who he deeply loves, the devil. And he did it in front of all the other disciples. Can you imagine how humiliating, how hurt Peter must have felt? And who of us yet will deny that Jesus said this in a spirit of love for Peter? Of course. See, that is what the apostle Paul is trying to tell us. He's telling us that when we're called to admonish each other, that means we are to love each other the way Jesus loved Peter in that instance why because if we don't if we just sit on the sidelines and we see someone in the church that we deeply love living the fool playing the fool thinking like a fool behaving like the fool right we are essentially allowing that person 
to become more and more like the devil. Let me say that again. When you see someone in the church who you deeply love, and yet they're living in a way that is off, that is not right, that is not good for themselves or for the people around them, and you just say, you know, I'm not going to interfere, what you are essentially doing is enabling that person to become more and more like Satan, like Satan. And because nobody in the church should ever want the people they love to become more like the prince of darkness, but instead more like the prince of peace, Paul says you should be ready and willing to admonish when it is necessary because that's what true love does, right? True love is willing to challenge, to confront, to even constructively criticize. Now, hear me when I say that, constructively criticize, right? We must make sure that the motivation in our admonition is really driven by true Christ-like love. Jesus never admonished someone to put people in their place. Jesus never confronted someone to rub their failures in their face. And we must make sure that that is never our mindset. That should never be our motives or intention as well. You see? True Christ-like love is always willing to do what their intentions are telling them to do, to admonish when it is necessary. Now, some of you guys are going to hear that, and you're like, oh, pastor, I hear what you're saying And I may agree, but that doesn't really help me in terms of how to do it. Because just because you have the right motives, just because you may have good intentions, as they say, good intentions are not always enough. So how do we make sure, Pastor, that if we have the right motives, which again is an issue of question, which I'll come back to later, even if we have right intentions, how do we make sure we do it correctly, right? Hey, that's a great series of questions. Let me see if I can answer it by going to my next point. The goal you need to remember when you admonish someone. Read again verse 15 of our passage. Paul writes, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Here in this verse, Paul highlights the goal we need to keep in mind so that we can properly admonish someone, right? And that our intentions are correctly followed through. It's found in that phrase, the peace of Christ. Peace of Christ. What does he mean by that phrase? Well, let me see if I can explain it this way. You know, when a person is getting admonished, when they're getting corrected, even when they know the person who's doing it really loves them, right? It's still so hard not to take it personally, right? It's still so hard not to interpret person admonishing us as a personal attack, right? And how do most people respond when they feel like they're getting personally attacked? It's really one of two reactions, right? They either fight back or they flee from that person, cutting them out of their life, right? The flight or fight response. And because none of us want someone we love to attack us or, God forbid, cut them out of our lives, many of us, even though we feel it is necessary to confront, we won't confront, right? We just will say, you know what, I'm just not going to bother. And you know what, I totally get that. I understand that response because I'm always tempted to do the same thing every single time. But here's the problem, right? That kind of reasoning assumes something very wrong. It's the assumption that goes like this. Look, this is, you, imagine you're talking to yourself. You know, I know I need to talk to this brother. I know I need to address this with this sister. But if I just keep my mouth shut, if I just mind my own business, if I just keep to myself, then we can still sustain this love that we have for one another. We can still maintain this friendship That's one of the main underlying reasons to why so many of us will not confront in the church. 
But if you think that way, if you think that way, you need to come back to this idea of peace of Christ. You see, New Testament scholars tell us that this word peace could be substituted with the word friendship, where peace of Christ could be interpreted as friendship with Christ. And indeed, the Bible teaches that when Jesus died on the cross, it resulted in him being friends with us. But did you know that the Bible also tells us that Jesus had a specific goal in mind as to why he befriended us in the first place? He hints at it in John's gospel, the 15th chapter, where starting in verse 12, he says this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Notice what Jesus is saying here. He says, because of his death on the cross, it resulted in him being friends with us. But notice, he kind of sneaks in. Well, not sneaks in. He, he kind of alludes to the reference to the Father as well. Why does Jesus include discussion about friendship with relation to his Father in heaven? Simply put, Jesus is saying, if you become friends with me, you automatically become friends with my Father right? You ever have someone tell you, hey, I know you. You're so-and-so's friend. Hey, any friend of so-and-so is a friend of mine. You ever had anyone say that to you before, right? Why do people say that? Because they're saying that the friendship bond that they share with so-and-so is so tight, so intimate, that by you being friends with that person automatically makes you a friend of theirs. And Jesus is saying the same thing. Jesus' bond of love between the Father and him is so intimate, it's so deep, it's so amazingly profound that if you are befriending one, you are befriended by the other. And believe it or not, that was the reason why Jesus was friends with you in the first place. Jesus died on the cross, not so that he could just have you for himself, but so that he could also share with you his greatest love, which should be your greatest love as well the one who created you and loved you before the foundation of the world. Jesus ensured that through his death on the cross that you would be friends with him so that you could be friends with the Father and the Spirit and himself. You see? And Christian, that is the goal you need to keep in mind with regard to your relationships in the church, with your friendships in the church. Why? Because hear me when I say this. Biblical friendship has as its main goal of building intimacy with God. Let me say that again. Biblical friendship has as its main goal of building friendship with God. In other words, God designed your Christian friendships, which is true friendships, right? Because God is the architect of all relationship, right? To be designed to enrich and enhance your relationship with God himself. And I think this is something we really need to grasp because I feel so often in the church, many of us make the mistake into thinking that we have biblical friendships in the church when in reality we don't. You see, we just have these categories that God would never recognize as valid friendships. We think, oh, you know, we happen to go to the same church and so we're biblical friends. Or we enjoy doing things that are non-church related, you know, whether it's fishing, whether it's going to a Mets game. And because of that, and we go to the same church, we have biblical friendships. But that may not be the actual case, okay? And one of the ways that you know that you may not have a biblical friendship with someone, which is a true friendship, is when you're unwilling to speak 
when you need to speak, when you're unwilling to intervene. I mean, think of it this way. If you, Christians, see another believer in Christ, someone who claims to be a believer in Christ, living in blatant sin, essentially deteriorating their relationship with God, and you conclude, you know what, I'm just going to keep to myself and not say anything, right? Thinking that by doing so, you're going to maintain this friendship with them. I'm sorry to say you either never had a real friendship as far as God is concerned, or the friendship you did have is going to deteriorate and get darker and become more sinister and sinful, okay? Haven't you ever wondered why friendships in the church that used to be so righteous, so pure, so godly devolves into things and direction that is more like the associations that the world would define as friendship, but God would say is not? Here's my point. True friendship, biblical friendship, is always designed to enhance and enrich one's relationship with God to where you are more concerned with the other person's friendship with God than even your friendship with them, right? And that also applies with this regard to admonition. When you properly admonish somebody, the results should always be the same. It should enrich and enhance their relationship to God. Read again what it says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then what happens as a result? You sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice what Paul says happens when a person is properly, genuinely admonished in a spirit of love. It results in them singing more hymns, more psalms, more spiritual songs. In other words, deepening their worship, which is an indication of what? A deepening friendship with God, right? So what's my point? My point is this. If you're thinking that you not wanting to admonish someone is preserving your friendship, I'm sorry to say that's actually wrong, right? Because when you choose not to admonish, thinking that you're going to not lose the friendship, you're inevitably going to lose it, right? Because the foundation of any true friendship that is in spirit with what God has designed is that it's centered on God, it depends on God, and it's ultimately directed towards deeper intimacy with God. Do you get that? So that's the goal you need to keep in mind. Because when you have that goal in mind, it really gives you a clear focus of what you need to do to where you're not distracted by something that is demonstrably false anyway. You see? But with that all said, now that you have the goal in mind, we come back to the issue of motives. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, we're all fallen creatures. And on any given day, our motives can be good. Our motives can be bad. Certain moments, our motives are godly and pure. Other m days, our motives are ungodly and impure. And, of course, we can't really control when the need to admonish arises. They're like crises. We don't control when they come into our lives. And it could be that you are at a certain point in your life, motivationally speaking, and you have a situation where God may be calling you to admonish. And the question is, how do you make sure that you're in the right place from a motivational standpoint so that you are in proper position and therefore the right person to actually admonish? Well, that leads me to my last point. Questions you might ask yourself before you admonish someone. Here in our passage, uh, Paul tells us there are two things that we must do before we admonish anyone at all, before we even think about admonishing. Let's go over the first thing we must do. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
Here, Paul says the first thing that you must do before you sense God is calling you to confront somebody in the church. Pray, right? That's what he means when he says everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray constantly. Pray, 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 pray. Why? Because the more you pray, the more you realize who you're talking to, God. And the more you think of God, the more you remember the goal of admonition in the first place, right? It is to ensure that this person you're called to confront is prioritizing God. Not prioritizing you and your friendship with them, but prioritizing God. The more you get into the habit of praying, right, the more you will be reminded of who the main person should be in all of this issue of confrontation and loving challenge, okay? And as you pray, pray for wisdom, pray for humility, pray for grace, pray for protection, against your own sins, against the whispers of Satan, against the gossiping that's going around surrounding this issue that might be attached to the need for you to confront. Pray, 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 so that you remember the goal and the person in mind as you admonish. Second thing that you need to do, verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The words of Christ dwell in you richly. If the Bible is all about Jesus, That means every word that pertains to how God is honored, they're all Jesus' words, right? Which means what? You need to meditate, study, memorize, learn the Bible. Study, read, memorize, meditate on the Bible. The more you know the Bible, the more you can come up with diagnostic questions that you need to put upon yourself to evaluate whether you have the right motives in place so that you can properly admonish someone. Let me share with you, I'm going to share with you right now, some questions that I've written out over the years as a pastor in my study of Scripture that I always ask myself, or at least I try to, before I challenge anyone in my life. Question number one, is this issue I want to confront with someone an actual sin, or is it more of a personal preference? You know, sometimes I think that when someone does something wrong, It's because it's according to my standards, not God's. And I want to make sure that if I'm confronting someone, I'm not confronting them because PJ said so. It's because God said so, right? Is this person doing anything that clearly violates what God has clearly written in his word? Or is it simply my own preferences and opinions? If it's the latter, I keep my mouth shut. If it's the former, I speak in love. Number two, has the person repeatedly been making foolish decisions even though other people have admonished them? And the reason why I ask this question is because I want to make sure that I'm not the only one seeing what I'm seeing. That if other people have spoken to them, I know I'm not crazy or I'm not being hypercritical and I'm not just thinking my own thoughts, okay? Number three, if the reason for my confrontation is due to me feeling offended, have I first forgiven that person in my heart or do I feel the need to put them in their place? forgiveness is so vital and that is the first step forward before you even say anything or do anything when you need to confront someone right to be honest every time i get into an argument with my wife and i think that she is wrong the first thing i have to ask myself is do i first need to be forgiven though right or does she need to be forgiven it's usually me that needs to be forgiven right honey right anyone want to come over for dinner tonight anyone (laughs) question number four Do I know for sure that what I think the person did is true or am I just going by what I hear from other people, right? Am I just going by secondary tertiary information or do I have direct knowledge, right? An actual conversation, an actual email, a text or something that shows this clearly was spoken or written by this person, right? Number five, um, 
Have I first recognized my own sin in the situation, if there is any? Do I tend to be excessively critical towards people over a specific issue, right? If I'm a recovering, you know, alcoholic, right? Alcoholics who are recovered tend to be very critical towards others who are struggling with alcoholism. And it can be so skewed in the way that we confront, right? Is that something that I'm thinking through, right? Do I have a clear and specific issue that I need to confront the person with? Or is it more of a general feeling or vibe that makes me uncomfortable? Look, if you don't have anything concrete or specific to address, then you shouldn't say anything at all, right? Am I more concerned about what the person I need to confront thinks of me? Or am I more concerned about what God thinks of me? You need to make sure that God is the forefront of the mind to where you're more concerned about that person's relationship with God than even their relationship with you, right? Do I recognize that under certain circumstances, I could be struggling just like that person who needs to be confronted? Do I realize that I'm no better so that I don't come across with this holier-than-thou posture before them? Do I believe the gospel? This is important. Do I believe in the gospel to where even if the person I confront breaks off their friendship, I can be okay because God's approval of me in Jesus Christ is more important than man's approval. I'm not going to promise you that if you admonish someone in the right way with the right motives that they're going to not cut you off. That could happen, right? It could. But I'll tell you, when that person eventually comes around, which we trust the Spirit of God will do, they'll come back at you and say, thank you for loving me when I did not want to be loved that way. I've had that happen to me. And it's friendships that come out of that become even that much more stronger and much more life-giving. See, asking these kinds of questions based on your solid study of God's word will protect you against yourself, will protect you against false motives that need to be eradicated before you even attempt to talk to someone. So here's my question, NCF. With all this said, I said a lot. Here's where it comes down to. Are you willing to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you willing to be your brother's keeper, your sister's keeper, Are you willing to be jealous for God's love for them and their love for God more so than their love for you and your love for them, right? If you are, then that entails the next thing, and that is you have to be prepared to do what many of you here in person are doing now. Come and be here with us. Be in person. Listen, admonishing someone is a very difficult thing to do. And the reason why it's so difficult because it involves a hard conversation. When was the last time hard conversations could be effectively done over the phone, through a text, or an email, right? I mean, we all talk about how it's messed up to break up with someone over text, right? Or even over the phone, how it's messed up to to have a hard conversation at work that could entail getting a pink slip, right? Right? Hard conversations, by their very nature, demand the respect of a face-to-face, in-person encounter. And that's no different when it comes to this hard conversation as well. Now, that's not to say that there are intense moments where sometimes a text or an email may be necessary, but that's the point. It's only a moment. Those moments should eventually lead to an in-person, face-to-face, present encounter, right? And so that's my challenge to you as well, to where if you've been persuaded about the necessity for admonishing each other, then you must remember that also entails the necessity of being with us, being in our presence. Have this face-to-face encounter, mask, of course, right? So that we can truly love each other the way God calls us to love. 
That is how we are able to create a counterculture society that shows the society out there where true hope, where true love is truly found. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to digest this very difficult topic. And Father, I in no way want to minimize how difficult this may have been for all of us to hear and even make us fearful of even attempting to do it. Father, I confess that I, many instances, cower away from this responsibility, especially even as pastor of this church. Forgive me and forgive all of us for ways in which we have made excuses or we have tried to turn the blind eye or we've, we kept our mouth shut when the Spirit of God has called us to do this. And yet, Father, we also realize that there is such a thing as real spiritual abuse where churches, in the name of admonition, have taken license to dominate and to hurt and to show their superiority over others. Father, these are real dangers and that we need your holy word and your spirit to work in us as we learn this word to truly be able to love each other in this profound and delicate way. Father, we cry out to you for mercy and grace so that we would do this well, but hopefully not as much. God, we pray for grace and peace amongst the saints of NCF. We pray for grace and peace amongst the saints across the church worldwide and the universal church. Father, we want for peace to reign through God's people so that the world will see the one who is the true source of peace. God, would you help us to live this out humbly and with much fear. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're not going to give God his time.